Amen. Well, my name is Kyle, uh, one of the pastors here at Two City Church, and it is an exciting time to be a part of our church. And just to kind of update you, I say this often, but I, I think it's helpful and it'll explain this video that what's happening in our church is three things. Number one, we have grown numerically, okay? That means people are meeting Jesus, they're getting baptized. Uh, every week uh, on Sundays, I'm meeting people who they moved to this city and they're joining our church and they're really excited and our city's growing and so our church is growing and that's really exciting. So that is growing numerically. Now, when you grow numerically, you also hope to grow spiritually, right? And we're seeing that. That's uh, sins are being repented of, that's marriages are being restored, that's uh, families are being reconciled, okay? Addictions are being broken and that's happening all the time and we're really excited about that. Now, here's what happens. When you grow a lot numerically, and when you grow a lot spiritually, you have to grow organizationally. Your systems, your structures, your staffing, it has to grow with it, right? Look, at, look around at this room. We are out of space completely, okay? We do have two other services. Part, part of growing is uh, that we're gonna need a bigger facility. We know that. We're not gonna be in this facility forever. Uh, but, but a large part of it is our staffing. And so we have said, so this is why we're so excited about Stephen, and we're excited about Rachel, we're excited about the, uh, the Lawrence's, excuse me. We're very, very excited about them for multiple reasons. He's gonna come on our staff and he's gonna be a staff pastor. And this means at least two things. First, it means that he's simply going to be another pastor to care and to counsel and to preach and to teach. Uh, what's really exciting is he's been a senior pastor for five years in a church in Nashville. In fact, they, they met each other. Stephen and Rachel met each other when they were eight years old, okay? They, they, they've grown up in the same, Rachel is a pastor's kid her dad, you may have heard of him, he, he started Long Hollow Church, one of the most influential churches in the whole state of Tennessee. And we hire every pastor's kid we can, okay? <laughs> Dave's a pastor's kid, Donovan's a pastor's kid. If you find a pastor's kid and they love the Lord and they love the church, we hire them, okay? Um, because then you have a spidey spiritual sixth sense and you just kind of know everything and you kind of have been in the church world your whole life, but you still love it and you understand people and you give them grace and all of that kind of stuff. And so we're really, really excited about that. The first, so he's gonna be a pastor. The second thing he's gonna do is he's gonna help us with a residency. Now, this is really exciting. Right now, we've got 13 people that have applied just for this next class of our residency. So we're, and what this is gonna do, so he is, he's, gonna, he's finishing up his PhD in theology. So along with being a pastor, anybody who goes to a residency is going to be able to get their master's in, in Christian ministry from Southeastern Seminary while in the residency because we have a PhD on staff. So they're, they're, we're marrying together the local church, theological development, and the training of future leaders, and we couldn't be more exciting, more excited about it. So... Um, they're gonna be moving here. Now, let me just tell you, how do we think about pastors, right? We think, and this is good for you to know too, and, and by the way, if you're a member, at the end of April, we're gonna have a members meeting where you guys are gonna get to meet him and, and affirm Stephen. But how do we think about pastors? Well, we think about, so we think about, think about it this way, layers and levels of doors. It's like, you know, uh, to attend our church, really big, wide open door, <laughs> right? Anybody can come. We're the church for anybody. We're not the church for everybody. We're okay with that. So big, big door, you can come, right? Uh, membership, smaller door. Uh, leadership, smaller door. Staff, smaller door. Staff, pastor, super, super tiny door, okay? <laughs> but but it's, it, we love him. We've, been, we've known him for a while. We've been walking with him, walking with his family, his character, his ministry experience, his theology. We can't wait to welcome him here. Uh, let me say this as well. He's gonna not only see, oversee our residency, he's also gonna oversee our internship. If you're a college student or you have a college student who, who wants to say, what would it look like to give my summer to, to uh, reach the city of Winston, to serve the local church, and to work on my relationship with Christ? We're gonna be having 10 weeks this summer. Uh, we're gonna have interns. And, and, and now every time we talk about internships, you know, college students, and I was a college student and I worked in college ministry and I know how college students are. They're very worried about their resume. Well, I, you know, I, mean, I have to put the biggest, I have to say I went to Manhattan and I have to work at this big company and it has to make it on my resume. Well, we are going to allow you for this internship to put down that you worked at the Global International World Headquarters 
for 2C search, okay? <laughs> right here in Winston-Salem. So if it's a brand sensitive thing, well, you know, you can write that down. But we, we are very, very excited about it. Just, just consider it. It's, I think it's gonna be an incredible opportunity as we continue to deepen and develop what we're doing. You heard that video. There's a lot of joy. There's also a lot of sadness. They're leaving two sets of grandparents. Uh, missionaries do this all the time. They have to say a gospel goodbye. They're moving here for the sake of mission. Uh, let's take a moment, pray for them as they make this transition. Lord, we thank you for Stephen and for Rachel. We're excited about their ministry here. We know it's hard to say goodbye to grandparents and take Crosby and Reynolds and bring them to a whole other state, Lord. Lord, we're thankful for the way that you used Long Hollow Church and you used a Green Hills Community Church. And you used their time in, in, in Nashville, their time at Southeastern Seminary to equip them and prepare them for ministry. Lord, we just are excited in the next few months to welcome them uh, as a part of our church family and a part of our pastoral staff. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, you can type to or turn to a Matthew chapter 5. If you're new, we're in this series. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. We're walking through the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached it, Jesus Christ. Week one, he basically does all the blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the meek and blessed are the pure in heart. And here, here's what you need to know about that. If kind of I can catch everyone up. Jesus Christ cares most about our spiritual lives. And most of us don't care enough about our spiritual lives, right? Most people, it's like the last thing they think about, right? They've got a plan for working out. They've got a plan for their relationships. They've got a plan for their finances. They've got a plan for their career. And then you ask them, what is your plan for your spiritual life? And they don't have one. But here's the interesting thing. And you know this. And if you just think about it for two minutes, you'll know this. If you focus on your spiritual life, genuinely, and you focus on what the scripture says, it affects all areas of your life. Oh, I, I did 10 years of college ministry. Every time I saw someone come to faith in Christ, their GPA went up. <laughs> because they realized, wait, God cares about my academics. God cares about my mind. I want to love God with my mind. Someone, you know, you, if you're just working on working out and being healthy, then you'll probably have a pretty healthy body. It, it, but if you, if you come to Christ and you submit to scripture, you'll start to realize God cares about what I eat. God cares about my health. I, my body is a temple. And you'll start to care about that. So Jesus starts where we all should start, where he starts with our spiritual lives. And then, and then last week, we, we can't have a lot of time to go back into this, but basically he says, all right, guys, now look, I, I want to do something in you. That's blessed are those who mourn. That's the power of the gospel in your life. I'd also like to do something through you and beyond you. And so he talks about being salt and he talks about being light. And let me just practically, what I want to do is bring this down, right? Because Christians are terrible at measuring things. Christians are terrible at setting goals. Christians are terrible at knowing whether or not we're actually making progress in our Christian faith. So here's what we're doing. We're saying, here's our goal. To, if we could put one goal out there and go, what does it mean? How can we even see if we're being salt and light? We have 63 community groups. Each community group has about 15 to 20 people in them. Those 15 to 20 people probably know collectively another 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 people who are far from God and close to them. We're saying every community group's got 50 to 100 probably relationships they're connected to. What would it look like for every community group to see one person baptized in 2021 because they've been faithful to be salt and light in their community? And so Jesus, he moves from blessed are you, spiritual life's important, to I want to help you. I want you to understand that you have a mission in the world to now, if, he's, if, you're, if you're following closely and if you're like a especially if you're, you always want to think, like one of the reasons you want to read the Bible is like, well, what would the first audience be thinking? The first audience would be thinking, okay, this is all great, really cool insights, Jesus, uh, great mission, Jesus, but what I want to know is, what do you think about the Bible? And so what Jesus is going to do with, with our time today is he's going to give us, and this is such a neat part, part of the scriptures, he's going to give us his understanding of the Bible. So with that said, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, Verse 17. Let's look here. Here's what he says. 
Verse 17, and every word of scripture is important. Look how he starts. Do not think. Now, so Jesus is not afraid to tell people you might be thinking wrongly about something. Is it possible to think wrongly about the Bible? Absolutely. Do most Americans think wrongly about the Bible? Yes, they do. (laughs) So here's what he says. Do not think, because there's a way that you could think this. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. And if you put law plus plus prophets basically equals the entire Old Testament. That's, that's their way to say Bible, okay? So don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. And then he says this, I've not come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. So first thing he says is, okay, so, you know, th- this is true in all of life, right? Sometimes like before you can learn anything new, you have to unlearn some things. <laughs> You're like, I've been thinking wrongly about this for a long time. So let me tell you some wrong ways that people think about the Bible. Uh, first of all, there's the very, very negative view of the Bible, right? It's, it, it sounds something like this. You know the Bible, it's like anti-science, it's like wrong, wrong uh, side of history. It's, uh, it's outdated. It's oppressive. It's restrictive. I mean, I, I, have you ever had anyone talk like that? It's, it's, it's absolutely irrelevant to my life. I mean, I, I've told some of you this story before, but I remember when I was meeting uh, at Duke University, I was meeting with a um, guy on the soccer team there. And when you are at Duke and you are an athlete at Duke, it's arrogance times arrogance. You're super arrogant. <laughs> Um, very, very arrogant. Um, and so I met this guy and he liked me, but, but I started to share Christ with him. I met, met him through a fraternity. I started sharing Christ with him. And about halfway through, he looks at me and he says, I feel bad for you. It's like, well, I'm 10 years older than you, man. Come on. <laughs> don't, just don't tell me you feel bad for me. And so you know, that's always humiliating. He goes, I feel bad for you. He says, he goes, cause you're oppressed. He says, you're reading an old book written by a bunch of dead guys. And then he leans in and goes, but you think you have the truth, so you feel good. I was shaking, you know? I mean, he started asking all these questions and I gave some answers and I, you know, maybe, I, but I remember walking away shaking, I called my pastor. And he began to encourage me. He actually went to this verse. And he began to encourage me and said, let's look at what Jesus says about scripture. So the first thing that, that, and we'll get to that in a second, the first thing is that some people look at scripture as outdated, it's oppressive, it's anti-science, it's irrelevant. Most of those people have actually never read it, but that's what they, that's what they say. The, the second is people look at it as a, kind of a neutral view. The neutral view of scripture is like, it's a great religious textbook. We're, we're glad for its impact on history, kind of. <laughs> you know, um, it, it, I'm sure there's something we could learn from it. Like when they did, I think it was Barna who did the... Um, most recent survey about the Bible, 65% of Americans said the Book of Mormon, the Bible, and the Quran basically say the same stuff. Obviously, they've never read any of those books, right? I mean, different way of salvation, different uh, character of God, different view of sin, different view of Jesus, different view of the cross. But that's more the neutral view. Hey, take it or leave it. If you want to read your Bible, it's, I'm sure it's got some interesting proverbs in it or something. And then there's kind of the the view that sometimes that people come to the Bible with, which is a very narcissistic view, that somehow it's going to answer all my problems. It's going to be completely about me. You know, it's like we always say the Bible's for you, but not ultimately about you. And, and so if you're like, well, it's going to be my way to figure out my finances and figure out my family and figure out my business. And it's like, well, actually, that's not the point. The Bible, if you could say it in one, well, maybe one sentence, the Bible's a book of salvation. So it's not a science textbook now. It's not anti-science. It's not against science. It doesn't contradict science. It's not any of that. But that, that, that's not the point and purpose of it. It's not even a philosophy, philosophy book. I mean, now there is some interesting philosophical things in there. It doesn't answer every philosophical question we have. The Bible, Paul says this to Timothy. Paul's the guy who writes a lot of New Testament. He says to Timothy, he goes, hey, uh, I want you to know the scriptures. They are, they are that written to make you wise unto salvation. 
So it's, it's a book of salvation. It's a book so we can know how to have a relationship with God, how to be freed from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the pollution of sin, one day the presence of sin. And so in verse 17, he says, I, I don't want you to think that, but then he says this. He, he has a view of himself. This is what's interesting. Look at what he says next. Same verse, but I want to read it again. He says, do not think that I have come. He puts himself, by the way, in the center. I've told you this many times before, but Jesus is the only religious teacher in history to say, world leader in history, world religion in history, to basically say he doesn't point somewhere else for belief and for faith. He doesn't point to other people and places and practices. He points to himself. So he sees himself at the center of everything. Look, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what are the law and the prophets? Think about it this way. Law is command, prophet is promise. That's a simplification, but that's helpful. Because most of the Bible, like if you're reading the Bible, it's either going to be just information that's helpful to let you know dates and times, or usually it's gonna be filled with command and promise. And so he says, okay, look, all right, I came to fulfill the commands. What does that mean? Well, the law. Um, there are 613 laws in the Bible. That's a lot. Like you can summarize them in the 10 commandments, but there's 613 laws. And Jesus says, I've come to fulfill them. Now walk with me for a minute through this. Cause it's, it's kind of a lot of information, but it's good to know. How does Jesus fulfill them? Multiple ways. First of all, he fills it most importantly by obeying it for us. So it's like he obeys every, cause and this is going to happen in your life. You're going to realize I failed. I've sinned. I can't keep God's law perfectly. So the encouragement is that you have somebody else who did it for you. That's the first thing. He, he's like, guys, I'm, look, I, everything I'm going to teach you, because he's going to, we'll see today, anger and lust and loving your enemies. It's like, well, who can do that? Nobody, except Christ. So you say, I'm going to fulfill it in the sense that I'm, I'm going to actually do everything for you. Secondly, I'm going to fulfill it, and I'm going to show you what it looks like. Right? Because it's kind of hard. It's like, well, what does it really look like to love your neighbor? What does it look like to love your enemies? And what does it look like to sacrifice for people? It's like, it's hard. Could somebody model this for us? And so the gospels are Jesus going, oh, I'm going to model this for you. I'm gonna fulfill it by putting flesh on it. That's why he's called the incarnate, in flesh, the in flesh word, incarnate word. He's going to come and he's gonna, it's like, what is God's personality like? The answer is Jesus Christ. So he says, okay, I'm gonna fulfill it that way. He, okay, I'm gonna fulfill it by explaining it in more depth to you. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna expand it, I'm going to enhance it, I'm going to deepen it, I'm going to develop it, I'm going to tell you what it all means, I'm gonna show you the connections. One of the most interesting things is Jesus says you can't understand the Bible unless you read it messianically and missionally. Okay, messianically is Jesus is at the center. Missionally is his mission is at the center. That's how he understands it. And then he fulfills it by do, taking on the negative parts of the law, which is the punishment for sin. So Jesus is at, what's the cross about? It's about him taking on the curse of the law on himself. So this is a profound statement about Jesus Christ. He says, I fulfilled that. I also fulfilled the prophets. What are the prophets about? He said, I did everything they said I was going to do. Even things that I wouldn't have been able to control if I wasn't God like where I'd be born, that I'd be born by a virgin. Uh, there was, I think, something like 300 prophecies of Christ's first coming. He fulfilled all of them. And so the first thing he says is, all right, I want you to understand the Bible. I want you to understand it's not an outdated book. It's not an oppressive book. It's a book where I'm at the center. But then look what he says. Look at the next verse in verse 18. He says this, for truly I say to you, now he's getting more intimate with his language. So when he starts a sermon, he says, hey, blessed are those who mourn. It's kind of general and more generic. And then, and then he you know, says, hey, you are the salt and you are the light. And that's a little bit more personal. And then he gets really, really personal. He says, and he loves to say this, for truly, I say to you. So it's, it's authoritative, but it's intimate. He says, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Jesus is talking about the total truthfulness 
and trustworthiness of Scripture. And it's very interesting. I want to take a moment because, you know, you know, it's yes, it's important what your peers maybe think about the word, you can word of God, and what your parents do, or what your pastors do, or what your professors do. There's other people you can learn from, but we really, if we want to know, like, it, I mean, what at the end of the day, what did, Jesus, what did you think about this? And, and he says it's interesting, not an iota, not a dot will pass. Now this is so important. This is why we look at every word. Okay, the old King James said, not a uh, jot or tittle will pass. Okay, um, the jot was is the smallest Hebrew letter. And the tittle, think tiny and little, was the smallest mark that you could make on a letter. So if you think of a lowercase o and a lowercase a, that little line at the end, that, that's basically a tittle or a dot, you would say in the Hebrew. And so here's, here's why this is important. This is, let me get real practical. What Jesus is saying is the very words of scripture themselves are inspired. The very words. And I know how this works because during my education, I ended up taking... I was in divinity school at four, it's a long story, but basically I was in divinity school at four different schools. So I got to see different places and I saw how, the, I saw how Duke Divinity thought about things and anyway, versus how did Southeastern versus how did Southern versus, I got to see all these different places. And what you'll start to see when people are trying to loosen the authority of scripture, the first thing they'll say is something like this. Well, if they're trying to still stay, act like they're Christian and stuff, they'll say things like this. Well, I believe in the general overarching message of scripture, which sounds good. Or I believe in the basic ideas. You know, I believe in the principles that are clearly set out in scripture. And that's what they'll do. And, and, and what they're doing is they don't want to be tied to the actual words of scripture themselves that require thought, meditation, study, logic, reason. And so Jesus says there's going to be, here's, what, here's where this goes if you don't have this view. Look at verse 19. He says, therefore, based on this high view of scripture, that Jesus himself has. This is the passage my pastor took me to when I was discouraged. He said, look at how high of a view Jesus had. When I was discouraged, when that guy said to me, you know, you're oppressed. He said, Jesus fought temptation with scripture. Jesus saw his life as fulfilling scripture. Jesus used scripture to encourage people. Jesus used scripture as his main teaching platform. Jesus loved the scriptures. Look at verse 19, he says, therefore, and here's the first temptation. To, to do something with scripture. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says positively, but whoever does them and teaches them. Now that's an important order. And, and the reason is because when you obey scripture before you teach it, you understand it more deeply. And particularly you understand how hard it is to obey. <laughs> So it doesn't, it doesn't mean that if you do scripture before you teach it, that you're gonna teach it you know, more liberally or, or, or more softly. You're, you're gonna actually understand it's actually very difficult to actually live scripture out faithfully. So it's gonna, there's gonna be a sense of grace as you talk about it. So he says this, he says, whoever does them and teaches them, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I wanna talk about, and this is another kind of thing culturally in our church we're always trying to do. We're trying to avoid the two extremes. We always believe there's a third way, right? Is Jesus God or man? Third way, yes, God and men, right? Was the scripture written by man or was it written by God? Third way, it's written by both, okay? Um, we wanna avoid the extremes. So one extreme is what we call theological liberalism, okay? And this is basically when you try, you do hermeneutical gymnastics and you try very, 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 very hard and sometimes you get whole degrees in this to make the Bible say the opposite of what it's saying clearly. You know, tithe doesn't mean tithe, Forgiveness doesn't mean that I have to actually, no one knows what my dad really did, so forgiveness doesn't, my situation is unique, it doesn't apply to me. 
Yeah, Paul didn't under, the apostle Paul didn't understand the idea of sexual orientation. He didn't understand those things, and this is why this is, and so we have to loosen it. That's archaic, that was traditional, that was based on the way they were thinking. They didn't have all the information that we have right now, so we need to unlock this and loosen this. That's theological liberalism. The other, the other extreme is fundamentalism, okay? They take the fun out of fundamentalism, okay? Um, or we affectionately call them indie fundies, independent fundamentalists. Um, and what's interesting about them is they make laws about the laws, right? I mean, this is, and so you'll know this because, it, and I'll give you, so, the, so think about it this way. The Sadducees, so this will give you a lens to look at scripture. The Sadducees, they were the theological liberals. That's why they were so sad, you see, Okay? <laughs> That's, that's, you'll remember that. So they were, they were theological liberals. They actually didn't believe, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife, right? Remember they tried to tr- quiz Jesus, you know, in all this stuff about the afterlife because they didn't believe in it because they were theologically liberal. What were the Pharisees? The fundamentalists of that? They were. They, they said things like you, um, you can't go on a, um, you, you'll ever see the Sabbath day's walk. Hey, they went a Sabbath day's walk. They would, a Sabbath day's walk was three quarters of a mile. And they made this goofy rule up not the Lord, not the Bible, but the Pharisees, that on the Sabbath, you couldn't work, walk more than three-fourths of a mile. And I've seen churches do this. Churches will make laws about the laws because it makes everyone feel safe. And it makes everyone feel like, we're really serious, you know? Like, I, I, I know this church back where I used to live, and uh, they had this, you know, okay, guys, we're gonna teach on the Sabbath. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, here's what the scripture says about the Sabbath. Oh, that's great. Uh, no playing sports on the Sabbath. Uh-huh. You know, like, why? You know, well, in the, in the, well, that's actually just a law that we're going to, we're no Frisbee on the Sabbath. They, they, they even got, at one point they said, they said, it doesn't matter if you're married, no sex on the Sabbath. Just all these kind of strange rules, right? Some of you grew up in homes where everybody made laws about the laws, right? You can't say curse words or words that sound like curse words, okay? <laughs> right? The law, law over law. Um, you know, and, and it's interesting, right? Because lots of rules are a sign of little relationship. Right, a lot, you, you walk into a home, lots of rules, usually very little relationship. Home with lots of relationship, lots of love, lots of prayer, lots of investment of time, usually very little rules. Important rules, rules are not, yeah. So here's what else happens. A lot of times you'll see, you know, these indie fundy pastors and they'll get up there and they'll make all these rules about alcohol. Now the Bible does, you know, uh, talk about this influence of drunkenness. But you'll see all these, these pastors get up there and they'll say, well, then we're gonna make a bunch of rules about how you can never drink and you can't touch alcohol, and you can't go to this place, da, 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 da. And then you look at them and you go, most of these people are severely overweight. And they'll say things like, you're not honoring the Lord's temple. Are you? <laughs> Your temple has a few additions. <laughs> but this is what happens, right? This is exactly what happens. And it's like, everybody thinks it's like we, we have a certain couple rules that we only hold on to. And we, we and, and it, what, here's the independent fundamentals, we pick things that we feel very comfortable with. We pick things that we have under control. We pick things that we feel good about and that we're doing well. And then it's, it's, it's a lot of it. I'm not saying that some don't have a good heart in it, but some of it is just a superiority complex. It, it's the heart of religion. We're going to tell people out there that they need to repent of things we don't struggle with. And so I want to show you what happens next. So he says, well, let me say this. So if we're going to avoid the extreme of liberalism, theological liberalism, and independent fundamentalism, independent fundamentalism, what's the third way? The third way is we hold to the Bible and the Bible alone, and we, we are always looking for grace, not a loophole. So it, here's what that means. You go, you read the Bible and you go, it says, submit to my husband. You know, I've told you this before, every time I, t- I have to teach on submit, 
Submit, I've got to like tell them we're, we got to sing like only two songs this week because I've got to talk about Submit forever because it's such a controversial topic. Because it's like, but you know, and we need to understand what it means biblically and everything, but then we need to say, okay, look, I'm not trying to make it mean the opposite of what it clearly says. What I'm looking for is not a loophole, I'm looking for grace. It's the same thing husbands should say, well, there's a lot of things in here about loving and sacrificing and nourishing and caring and, you know, I, you know instead of me trying to figure out why that doesn't mean what it means, I actually just say, God, actually what I want instead is I'd like grace. That's what I'd like. I'd like grace to walk through these things. So anyway, so Jesus goes on in verse 21 to tell us more. Here's what he says. He says, or sorry, verse 20. He says this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, and they were the most godly people of the day. It's like, you know, basically saying, unless you're a better golfer than Tiger Woods. Unless you're a better basketball player than LeBron James. It's like you hear it, you're like, there's just no way possible. These guys were memorizing the whole Old Testament. Uh, These these guys were as serious as it could. You've never met somebody as serious as a scribe or a Pharisee about their religious commitment and conviction. So then he says this, and this will be really surprising to Americans. Um, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait a second, I thought everybody went to heaven. I, I thought all you had to do was die and go to heaven. That's it. The one requirement to go to heaven was to die, right? I mean, that's what we hear. Everybody says that everybody's in a better place. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And so, you know, the the idea is that we have to realize, okay, wait a second. My righteousness is not enough. That's the whole point of the entire Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get into, today we're going to talk, with a little bit of time left we have, we're going to talk a little bit about anger. Next week we're going to talk all about lust and sex and all that kind of stuff. And so he, and he's going to take these and he's going to drill down and he's going to show us that all of us struggle with all of these sins. And if you really, and actually if you also say that we're supposed to do things for the right standard, the right motive and the right goal, the right standard, the word of God, the right motive, the love of God and man, the right uh, goal, the glory of God. If you realize those are the three standards, that's the way, then you realize we all fall short. In fact, most people think they're good because they've never tried to be good. You know, as soon as you actually try to be a good friend, like a really good friend, or you try to be a good dad or a good mom, or you try to be a good employer, you try to be a good Christian, and you actually try and you care about it, you're going to realize how hard it is. And so he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter heaven. And then, now we'll look at verse 21, he gets into some, he gets into his first of six sayings where he says, you've heard that it's said, but I say to you. Let's look at the first one. He says this, you've heard that it was said. To those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So this is the first of six times where he's going to say this. You've heard it was said, but I say to you. And you've heard that it was said. Most commentators think he's actually not referring to the scripture verses but to how they've been taught. Because he doesn't say, you've heard that it was written, which is a very Jewish rabbi way of talking about the Old Testament. You've heard that it was written. He's actually saying what's happened is you've been in environments where you've been having bad teaching your whole life and it's affecting you. He's actually saying that the problem has been you've not had good Bible teaching that's been interpreted well, that's meant to be applied to your life. And I've been in environments like this. And when you're under bad Bible teaching for a long time, it makes you sick and it makes you weak. That's what it does to you. I can feel it when I'm in environments like this. 
and has no impact on my life and has no challenge and there's no grace and there's no, there's no challenge to repent and there's no personal application in my life. And so, you know, basically what happened back then is, well, you know, he says here, he says, you've heard that it said, do not murder. Now, this is kind of like, this is the one command we all think that we've kept, right? In fact, this is like, if you were to stop somebody on the street today and go, okay, um, are you a good person? You know what their answer will be? I ain't never killed no one. It's like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> if that's the standard, I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of what we think. We think like we are a good person if we've never murdered anyone. And Jesus does what he always does. He shows us the same spiritual sickness that leads to murder starts with anger in our hearts. And he's gonna talk about anger. Now, now a lot of people, they don't wanna admit that they're angry. And a lot of people don't even know they're angry. You know, it's hard to know you're angry if you're always full, if you're always entertaining and amusing yourself, if you live in a place where you can get away by yourself all the time, if you live in a temperature-controlled room where everything's met. It's like we, we live in such an environment that people don't even realize they're angry because all their needs are constantly met. It's interesting, I was meeting with a doctor um, recently, a member of our church, and, I was, and he said to me, he said, you know, he said, I, I, he said a couple interesting things to me, but he said, and I was surprised by this, he said, basically when I was first coming around to two cities, I was religiously lost. And I said, really? I said, tell me about that, I didn't know that. He said, yeah, he said, and he just said this, he didn't even know I was preaching on this this week or anything, he said, I was so angry. He said, I was so angry because I did everything right in medical school and I did everything right in residency and I, and I got out and I got the job I wanted but I didn't have a wife and I didn't have any close friends and I was just so angry all the time. And I looked at this person, I thought, I had no idea you would be angry. And he talked about God did his heart and all these different things, you just realize, anger's a big thing. Now a lot of you don't wanna admit that you're angry, right? You're not angry, you're Italian, right? <laughs> You're not angry, you're from the north. We get it, right? You're not angry, you're just frustrated. Um, but but anger's an interesting thing because, you know, anger, anger has to do with, at the heart level, right? It has to do with, like, let me ask you this. Have you ever wished there was somebody that was dead? I heard a pastor, or heard of a pastor one time. He, he was teaching other pastors. I didn't know him personally. And he said, you know what I do when someone leaves my church and they go to another church in my town? I have a funeral for them in my heart. Yikes. Bad, unbiblical advice. <laughs> but this, this guy's basically saying, I, I kill them in my heart, and I just, they're dead to me, right? I mean, but, and it's weird. You'll, you'll hear people, I mean, because you, you know, when you're in full-time ministry or counseling different things, you, 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 see, you hear, you see the best and worst of people. I've heard stories about people who wish their spouse would die quickly in a car accident. And it's sometimes not even a fully articulated thought, but it's like, well, you know, I have life insurance and if he or she does this, it'll be painless and it'll be quick and I can start over and I don't have to get divorced. You know, you know Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, she was asked one time, because they were like this kind of power Christian couple, and, and they asked her one time when she got older, they said, Ruth, did you ever think about divorcing Billy? She goes, divorce, no. Murder, yes. <laughs> um... Well, you can see it, right? You can see anger. We, get, we have road rage. There's, there's anger, right? I mean, there's, I mean, Twitter, there's so much anger. Our nation, there's so much anger. Uh, there was a New York Times article, uh, something about the fractured family. It came out last month. Um, New York Times article about the fractured family. They found out, they did this large uh, nationwide survey. They found out that one in four Americans has an estranged relationship in their family. In other words, they have somebody in their family they don't talk to anymore and they're angry at. One in four. The average estrangement lasts four years, it said, according to this article. And um, 
it was interesting because they said, well, there's, and I, I won't be able to remember them all right now, but they said there were six reasons why people get estranged. And I'll give you the ones I can remember, but one was um, terrible childhood experiences. And, and on Wednesdays, we go over my sermon kind of a little bit as a, with a couple of our staff, and I said uh, to the staff who were in the room, who, who here is, knows somebody in their family who doesn't get along with somebody in their family because of childhood experiences, and one or two people put their hand up. And then we said, okay, the second thing is divorce, parental divorce. You know, so when you got divorced, why you got divorced, how old the person was when, how old the child was when you got divorced, all this affects, you know, went around the staff. How many of you know someone in your family that doesn't talk to somebody because of a divorce? You know, people raise their hands. Life choices. They joined a different political party. They believe something differently. They've lived differently sexually of some level. You know, who's that affected? Hands go up. And you begin to realize, man, this is touching everybody's lives. We, we have a whole nation of people. It's like, our, yeah, we're, na- we're angry as a nation. That's shown in riots. It's shown on Twitter. Um, we're, our families are angry. You know, you, you see it every time at Thanksgiving. You see it at Christmas. People don't talk. And Jesus wants to get to the root of this. I want you to see what he says next. He says this, verse um, 22 says this. Uh, but I say to you, everyone who is angry, he's gonna get one level lower. So he goes angry, that's the action, with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever, and then here's where he gets at, whoever insults. So he's gonna get to the level of words. He says this, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So he, he gets at the level, I think that's like, you know, Jesus is highly biblical, highly practical. That's what we try to be here. Um, so what he does is he says, actually, here's how anger shows up in your life, your words. You know, and he said, because think about this. Where do your words come from? I don't even know if there's a technical answer for that, right? It's like, where do words come from? Where do thoughts come from? You know, you think about something or you're like, where's it all coming from? The answer biblically is it's coming from your heart. And, and the word insult and the word fool here, they basically mean the same thing in the Greek. It's the idea of worthless. That's what it is. It's, it's empty. That's what it means. And it's interesting that Jesus would spend a lot of time on the power of words, which is a very... Uh, biblical idea that life and death are in the power of the tongue, right? Because what does God do? God speaks. In Genesis 1, what happens? God speaks, and he speaks life into death, order into chaos, chaos, light into darkness, and things appear. But at the same time, right? I mean, who's ever been told sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you? What a lie! <laughs> so I can remember, I had this crush on this girl in elementary school, Okay. And I remember I, I liked her and I was talking to her. We were in the library. I was probably like fourth or fifth grade. And I remember she looks at me and she goes, you know, you look like that guy Arthur because you've got your, these squinty little eyes. <laughs> and I remember going into the bathroom going, I do have little eyes. <laughs> and I've never gotten over it. <laughs> to this day, I'm like, it was like, she was like a fifth grade girl. I had a crush on She said something to me. It was like, poof, you know, just completely knocked me over. And, and, but, but, you know, that's kind of a silly example, but we all have things like your dad said or your ex said or your wife said. And it's really, really, really painful. Also, words can be incredibly powerful, incredibly encouraging. You know, I, you know, I, I don't know, I don't talk about this often, but I, I don't know all the reasons why I don't struggle with some of the things that so many people struggle with. I have my own struggles, but I don't struggle with um, insecurity. I don't struggle with self-esteem. Uh, I don't struggle with having a low view of myself. And I've always wondered, why is that? And I think it's my dad. I had a dad who talked to me in every night, just encouraged me. Uh, was, such a, was such a kind and truth-telling father to me. You know, and I just, I've just always 
sometimes I've had a little too high view of myself, okay? <laughs> but that needs to change. But I'm saying I've always had a, all right, it was the power of words in my life. Now we know words are powerful. What is the whole cancel culture about? Well, I don't know at one level. I don't know a lot of things at certain levels. But, you know, but why is Twitter and Parler and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and should we do this, and should this person be on, and should they not be on? Well, I know what it's about at the deepest level. It's about the power of words. It's about that words have a power, and they have an effect on people's life, both for good or for bad. And so Jesus says, well, at the heart of murder is anger. At the heart of anger are these words that first come in your own heart and then get out of, your, out of your mouth and they're the words that you are empty and you are worthless, right? You can't talk about murder without talking about abortion. It's interesting, you know, I have had a few people tell me, you know, the Wake Forest students don't like it when you talk about abortion. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> you know, I, uh, it, but, it's, you know, but it, what happens with abortion and there's forgiveness and there's grace and all this, but what is abortion? Abortion is the opposite of the gospel. Abortion is you will die so that I can live. The gospel is I will die so that you can live. And what happens in abortion, though, technically what happens is we have to think something is worthless. We have to name it cells. We have to name it fetus. We have to depersonalize it. We can't see a sonogram. This is what we have to do if we're going to kill a baby. Every abortion kills a baby. I also have to talk about racism. What is racism? Racism is the, the belief that one race is superior to another. That one race is more full, the other race is more empty. There's a history of that. And if you read about it, you know, segregation and slavery, it was different. So, oh, they're not as smart as us. They're not as good looking as us. And you can read it. They were different. They actually will track the different ways that they talked about it. it you, have to, you have to keep getting creative and you have to keep, keep talking about why you can depersonalize and dehumanize. What, and we'll talk about this next week. What's pornography about? I don't care about your soul. I just care about your body. I don't, I, your pixel is not a person. You exist for my pleasure and that alone. So these are very, very deep ideas that Jesus is getting at. And then he takes one final step with our time left. Look, look at one last thing he does. If you look, at, look with me at verse 23, he says this. He, he, gets, he shows the other side of it. So he says, okay, look, two things are gonna happen. Sometimes you're gonna be angry with people. You're gonna have to learn to identify it. You're gonna have to learn that you're thinking about them wrongly and you're gonna have to move toward them, Okay. But then he says this. Here's what he says in verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then often come and offer, and then come and offer your gift. So this is interesting because he's saying, if, so, if you remember, it's not that you have something against somebody, it's that somebody has something against you. Now, my normal thinking, I was being convicted this week, because my normal thinking is if somebody has something against me, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> you know, and they're gonna have, uh, whenever they're mature enough to understand that they don't need to have anything against me, you know, then we'll move on. Which is the wrong way, it's not the unbiblical, it's the unbiblical way of thinking about it. It's actually this idea that, and do you notice this, he says when, when you're at the altar, which is vertical, you're thinking about your horizontal relationships. This is one, well, why do we, you know, whether it's, online or in person, why were we so eager to come back together? It's because what the church service is, is it's the weekly reminder to check up on all of your horizontal relationships. That's what it is. 
You're all, here, the, the image here is that, that the guy's at the temple, okay? So he's, he's putting something up on the altar. So if you're at the temple, it means you got on your donkey and you traveled a long distance and you bought a sacrifice and it's probably took you days. It may have taken you weeks and you're finally at the altar and you're about to make the sacrifice. And right before you do it, you feel in your heart, I need to go, I can't do this. I gotta go be reconciled to my brother. Why does he give us such an extreme example? Because he reminds us it's not going to be easy to be reconciled. Because somebody pops up in your head, well, like, I don't wanna do that. That'll be expensive. That'll be embarrassing. That'll be time-consuming. That'll be humiliating. I, I'll tell you, you know, when I was, I didn't show this in the first service. Uh, when I was, uh, just popped into my head. We'll see how this goes. Uh, uh, but, um, <laughs> but when I was, when I, when I was, uh, with campus outreach and summer beach projects, you know, we'd have, we would uh, have this 150 students would be down at the beach and people's whole lives would be transformed. And I remember at the end of each project, they often would say, particularly they would say to the men, they said, men, there's some ladies that you need to call and you need to apologize to them. And there are some things that you've done and whether it was your first year of college, maybe it was a girl in high school and you're, you've come to Christ now and God's changed your heart. And what I want you to do is I want you to call her. And it'd be that moment where it's like, all right, you've got about 50 different guys going into 50 different rooms, making 50 different phone calls. And the stories that came out of that and the hurt that you realized you had done to that person and the restoration that it had done to the, to the, to the guy that he felt, it was such a moving, powerful reality. It's like, all right, look, my vertical relationship needs to affect my horizontal relationships. This is why we can't do it as often right now because of COVID, but this is why we do communion. Okay, I've been a Christian for 20 years. Communion still scares me every time we take it because it's actually meant to. It's actually meant to say, don't eat this in an unworthy way. Think about your marriage. Think about your kids. Think about your coworkers. Do you have something against somebody or does somebody have something against you and you, have you tried to be a peacemaker? And if not, please don't take communion. And if you've seen churches that take that seriously, I, say, I see people sitting down and not getting up. And they're believers, but their marriage is in real trouble right now and they're not talking to one another. They're not taking communion. And it's that, it's that, it's that, it's that oh wow, we, we're, this is real. My relationship with God is real. I can't, I can't, because what do we want to do? We often want to cover all of our problems with more religious activity. You know, you'll see this happen every once in a while. Someone's marriage is falling apart and they'll come up. Where can we serve? Nowhere. Nowhere right now, because you, you, that's just going to cover up all the problems in your life. You, you need to receive in this moment. You need to reconcile your relationship. That's what you need to work on. And so he says, he ends with this. He ends with a warning. Look at verse 25. He says this, come to terms quickly. In other words, things don't go away. They just get worse. The most time wasted is the time getting started. He says this, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court. And then look what he says, it gets worse. He says, here's what happens if you don't do that. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. Okay, that's another level. And then the judge to the guard. Okay, that's another level. It's getting worse and I'm getting closer to getting to prison. And you be put in prison. And then verse 26, this is how he ends. And we'll pick up more next week, but he ends with this. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last Penny. Prisons back then are very different than prisons now. Now you go to prison and you have a bathroom in your prison and you have um, a toilet in your prison and you have a cafeteria to go to, okay, and you have clothes that are brought to you to wear and your laundry's done for you and all of this. Back then when you went to prison, 
The only way you got food is if your friends brought you food. The only way your cell got cleaned out is if somebody came to take the stuff away. And so you have to understand that when it says, you'll go to prison until you pay the last penny, he's basically saying you can't. If you're in prison, you can't pay the penny, penny or the penalty because you, you're, you're not able to go out, you're not able to work. What does this mean? This means the only way that you could ever get out of prison is if somebody else who's not in prison comes and pays everything for you. This is what Jesus Christ has done. You know, what's interesting is Jesus Christ, if you read his story, there's three or four times where it clearly says that Jesus Christ was angry. And if you do a careful reading of the scripture, he's always angry when he sees sin and its effect on people. And what's interesting is Jesus Christ, there was nobody who rightly had anything against him. But God had something against us. And so Jesus Christ left his gift at the altar and he left the temple and he went up on a hill to Calvary to die for your sins and for my sins. See, before you can call on anybody else to be reconciled, you need to call on the Lord and say, Lord, would you forgive me? I know that you have something against me, but I know that in Christ, you made a way for my sin to be paid. You know, one of my favorite songs is Jesus Paid It All, right? It's not, it's not Jesus paid some of it. It's Jesus paid it all. And I wanna read this, these lyrics, and then we'll pray together to you. It says this, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it as white as snow. He washed away, and when before the throne I stand, in him complete. Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you right now in Jesus' name, and we just realize that this event right here, when we come together, is a reminder of first, our vertical relationship with you. And so if there's anyone, whether online or in here, that just needs to call on the name of the Lord, the Bible is very clear that every person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If there's anyone who just needs to say, I am a sinner, I'm not a mistaker. I don't need a coach, I need a Lord and a savior. Lord, I pray you'd save them and change them today. Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, put people on our heart, Lord, our ex, whatever, whether it's friends or family, Lord, let, let us show the power of the gospel and that we move toward other people. We confess our sin, and we ask for forgiveness. Lord, if, we, if somebody has something against us, as much as it depends on us, we try to be peacemakers as we follow Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name, amen.